All right, church, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 13. Or flip in your phones, or you can just trust me to read it correctly, whatever. We've been walking with Jesus through the first 12 chapters of John, and now we get to chapter 13, and the next five chapters are going to find Jesus in a second-story room. We call it the upper room, and he's just hanging out with his 12 apostles, and he's going to share some very important things with them that... uh, that carry on to our day, we know so many of these verses and so many of the sayings of these five chapters in this upper room discourse, as we call it. Very intimate setting, a very important setting, as Jesus knows the time is coming for the cross. I'm going to read the first 17 verses of John 13, and then we will look at them together. Please listen as I read. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So read the words of the living God. 
As I was thinking about this sermon today, I thought, you know, how appropriate it would be if I just ask you all to remove your shoes and your sandals and your socks and bring you up here one at a time and wash all your feet or have you wash each other's feet. Everybody okay with that? Would you like to do that? Some of them are saying sure. Some are like, what kind of wacko church is this? No, we're not going to do that. But we're going to talk about what Jesus is, is mentioning here. This is one of the most famous passages in the scripture. Even non-Christians know something about the foot washing. Now, we have to have in mind the picture because this is so foreign to our experience. We, have, we need to get a clear understanding of what's happening here. They're in this upper room, as I mentioned, and it's a, it's a large room, clearly the house of a wealthy person. Not everybody had an upper room in that culture. So the house of a wealthy person, and they would have had the tables around, kind of maybe in a horseshoe kind of shape, and they would have had mats, and they would have been reclining, kind of leaning on their elbows, that's how they did things. They didn't sit in chairs like we do around a table. They're kind of reclining. And, and Jesus probably would have been on the, at the cross table and then some other tables along with the other disciples. And some of them had their backs to each other, that kind of thing, just leaning on their elbows around this, uh, these tables. And there would have been servants, slaves, who would have come and served uh, food and taken care of uh, this man who owned this house and his guests. Now, we, we have to get out of our minds what we think of when we think of servers. A couple weeks ago, on a Wednesday, it was National Cheeseburger Day. I like that day. I didn't know there was a National Cheeseburger Day, but it was National Cheeseburger Day. And so my wife and I went to a restaurant here in town and uh, had a cheeseburger or two. And our waitress was fantastic. She was this sweet young gal who came up and, and said, what can I do? And we said, well, we want a cheeseburger and we'd like sweet potato fries. Uh, and she said, well, that would be an upcharge. We said, great, we want two, uh, sweet, two packages of sweet potato fries. She said, well, I'll tell you what, how about you order them and they're bottomless. So you can figure out where we went, some of you. Uh, they're bottomless and, uh, and then you're, you know, she can order whatever she wants and we'll give you another side. So I'll only charge you for one sweet potato uh, fry, and I'll give you as much as you want, and she can get another side. Like, oh, that saved us like three bucks. This is great. And throughout the whole meal, man, she was on it. She was bringing us stuff, and she's bringing us more stuff, and gave us free stuff. And I thought, this girl's great. I mean, she's stealing from her owner, but we loved it. And, and we were sitting, you know, now they're squishing you together where you're instantly family with everybody. You know, we had another couple right here that we didn't know, didn't necessarily want to know. No, I'm kidding. It was fine. But we could hear their conversation just fine. And she was giving them free stuff. And she was giving these people free stuff. And she was great on our end. She was serving us, but she wasn't doing it because she was obligated. She was doing it because she was being paid to do this. She was earning money. Maybe, I don't know, she had a child at home, if she was paying her way through college or, or just earning a living, but she was in a transaction, a contractual agreement. She agrees to serve customers and her owner agrees to pay her stuff. That's not what's going on in the New Testament when we see the idea of servants and slaves. These were people who were considered inferior to their masters. And they were there required to bring food, to take care of, of these men and women. And one of the most disgusting and degrading services they had to provide was washing the feet of the master and his guests. Those people 
walked around in sandals, not nice shoes, not socks. They didn't have uh, bathtubs in every house with hot water where they could clean their feet. Their feet were nasty in that culture. And it was humiliating and degrading to wash someone's feet. In fact, for the Jews, they would not allow other Jews, even Jewish servants, to wash their feet. Only Gentiles were low enough to wash the feet of Jewish people. So what does Jesus do? They're having a meal, and he takes off his outer robe, sets it aside, strips down to just his, his loincloth, he takes the towel of a servant, he takes a bowl of water like a servant, and he goes around to these men, and he washes their feet. Now, John gives us the setting of what's going on here. John says, the hour has come. And we've seen this in previous weeks. All the way through the early chapters of John, Jesus kept saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet, but now the hour has come. And John tells us he knows that he's going to the Father. And he knows that the path to get back to the Father leads through Golgotha. The path for Jesus to get back to his father is through the tomb. And the way to get to the tomb is to go to the cross. The time has come. He knows that within a matter of hours, he's going to be abandoned by his best friends. These very men that are gathered around the table with him, they're all going to abandon him. He knows that the Jewish people, the people he came to save, are going to rebel against him. They're going to falsely accuse him of things he did not do. They're going to hand him over to the Romans. The Romans are going to shred his back with whips. They're going to drag him out to Calvary and drive nails through his hands, nails through his feet, stick a sword in his side, and he's going to hang on the cross in excruciating pain. And worst of all, God the Father is going to pour out his own wrath on Jesus. Jesus knows the only way to get back to the Father is through the cross. And the time has come. That's what's awaiting him in the upcoming hours. But I love what John tells us here. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and is going back to God. How can Jesus face all of this adversity the way he does? He is fully confident in what God is doing. Yes, he's got to go through the cross, but that's not the end of the story. On the other side of the cross, he's going to be exalted into the highest ranking place in heaven, and he's going to be glorified. Christian, do you know that 
is what awaits you as well. Now, you're not going to be exalted to the right hand, but you're going to be glorified. Death is not the end of the story for you. You know that, right? We have to hang on to that because between here and there, it's going to hurt. The path for all of us to glory is through our own cross, following the Lord Jesus, and it's through pain and suffering. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, disappointment at many levels. It's coming multiple times. Life is hard. We're not there yet. Your best life now includes a lot of affliction. How do we persevere through that adversity? We know what the end of the story is. We know that we will join Jesus in heaven and be glorified where all disappointment and all pain and all sorrow is done away with. Someday Jesus shall reign in fullness and all of our troubles go away. And the way we persevere in the meantime is knowing it's coming. Got to set our minds on that hope. Other New Testament writers say it this way. Well, John later on in 1 John will say, those who have their hope fixed on him purify themselves. Knowing that we're going to be with him in glory causes us to say, you know, I need to live well now. I need to live purely now because someday I'm going to stand before him and give an account. I need to live well. I need to live right. I need to please him. Peter talks about making your calling and election sure. Be confident that you know that's where you're going to end up. How do you do that? By obeying Christ, by being faithful, by loving others. And he says if you do that, you won't be useless or unfruitful. What happens when we take our eyes off of the future, when we get so caught up in the here and now and we begin to doubt whether or not the next age is coming? We start doubting God's goodness, we start doubting our future hope, and suddenly everything gets darker here and we throw in the towel and think, what's the point? Why should I try now? Everything's against me. Or if we lose sight of what's coming, we think, you know, I might as well get my biggest pleasure now because I don't know what's going to happen later. The scripture says, no, keep your eyes focused on what's coming and let that motivate you to live purely and endure and trust the Lord and know it will get better eventually. That's what Jesus did. He knew he was coming. He had come from the Father. He knew he was going back to the Father. And that allowed him to take on the humility of the slave and serve those very men who were about to abandon him. Imagine what these guys are feeling as Jesus washes their feet. I mean, he kneels down, he grabs one foot, sticks it in the bowl, squishes his fingers between their toes, ew, scrapes out the dirt from under their toenails, Shall I go on? This is what the king of kings, the son of the living God is doing as he's scrubbing the nasty, gnarly feet of these men. 
Thaddeus, let me clean your feet. Let me act as your servant, Thaddeus. Bartholomew, James, John, Andrew, Thomas. You realize he grabbed the feet of Judas and scrubbed them clean. What was going on in Judas's mind? Judas is going to betray him. The plan is already in the works. He's already contacted the Pharisees. This is the man who has worked it out that for money, he will lead the Jewish leaders to Jesus so they can arrest him and start the process to get to the cross. And Jesus is there washing his feet. What's he thinking? Is he having second thoughts? Is there a moment where he's thinking, uh, I don't know if I can go through with this? Or was he rationalizing the whole thing? Uh, this is no Messiah. Messiahs don't get on their knees and wash people's feet. This guy, he's, he's no Messiah. He's no military leader. He's not even raising up an army. You know, that money I'm going to make, I could do so many more great things than he would do with it. We don't know what Judas was thinking. Peter, on the other hand, we know exactly what Peter was thinking, as we always do, because once a thought enters Peter's mind, it comes out of his mouth. He comes to Simon Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you washing my feet? Uh-uh. Jesus says, Peter, what I'm doing here, you're not going to understand this yet. Trust me, you'll understand it later. Just let me do my thing. And Peter says, basically, never in a million years will I let you wash my feet. He did this a lot, didn't he? I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus says. Peter says, no, you're not. You're not going to die. I'm going to wash your feet. No, you're not. Never in a million years. Jesus says, okay. But if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Imagine that. Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you have no relationship to me. You realize that is still true to this day. If Jesus doesn't wash you, you have no part with him. Why did he have to go to the cross? Because we're dirty. Everyone in this room, we were born dirty. We read it together from Ephesians chapter 2. All of us were born as rebels. We hated God. None of us were born good. None of us came out of the womb going, woohoo, I cannot wait to serve God faithfully. No, we said, mine, 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 mine. No, 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 no. I'm doing what I want. And that makes us dirty. It makes us sinful. That was the state of all of us. How do we get clean? Jesus washes us. We come to faith in Jesus. We believe in him and he washes us clean. We sang this last week at the end. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Jesus to this day says to all of us, if I don't wash you, 
you have no part in me. We have to come to him and let him clean us. And he will. And he does. <laughs> so Peter flip-flops the other way. Well then, Lord, not just my feet. I mean, I want all of me clean. Wash my head, wash my toe, wash my, 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 my body, wash everything, my hands. Jesus says, calm down, calm down. You've bathed, it's all right. If I wash your feet, you're clean. If I clean you, Peter, you're all clean. My cleansing is sufficient. That's true of us. That's true of everyone who comes to him. No matter what our sin is, no matter how egregious our sin is from the past, no, how, no matter how awful we have been, and we can list off all the big sins, all the little sins, if Jesus cleanses you, you are completely clean forever. I got this, Peter. I'm washing you. You're good. Relax. He says, you are completely clean, and then he looks around and says, but not all of you. There's one man whose feet was washed whose heart was not. There was one man whose feet Jesus cleaned whose sins were not washed away. And he knew it was Judas and he knew what Judas was going to do and he knew that Judas was not going to follow through and believe. Satan had already entered his heart, we're told, and the process was in, in process. So after he washed his feet, he takes his garments and he has a little dialogue with them. Now, what John doesn't tell us, but the other gospel writers do tell us, there was another conversation that took place earlier that day. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and things are, he said, the hour has come, we're going, and some of the, the apostles are having a fight. They're having a debate with one another. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Right? I'm going to sit at your right hand, Jesus. No, I'm going to sit at your right hand. Hey, Jesus, tell us, which one of us gets to sit at your right hand and be your right-hand man in your kingdom? We can't wait. We know that one of us, we don't know about those other ten, but one of us is going to be greatest in your kingdom. Look at us. We're, we're, we're superheroes. We're, we're, we're friends of Jesus. It's going to be great. Such arrogance. Such pride. Such foolishness, they're in the presence of the Son of God himself, and they're debating about who's greatest. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them a lesson in humility and show them what greatness looks like. Someone has said, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That is a crucial distinction. Because sometimes we think humility is to take on this posture and say, oh, you know, I'm just worthless. I can't do anything. I'm just a meek, humble guy. I, you know, I, it, it's amazing I can put two sentences together because I'm really dumb. And, and any time that you actually, actually act like you are successful at something, that you're prideful. That's not biblical humility. Jesus is humble. Did Jesus walk in and say, hey, stop calling me Lord? I mean, I'm, I'm really nobody. I can't do anything. 
No, 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 don't worship me. I'm not, uh, no, 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 stop that. Anybody could do what I'm doing. No, it's not what Jesus did. But what happens when you say, I'm awful, I'm unworthy of anything, I can't do anything, I have no hope, I, I just could have stumbled into this situation, I accidentally got that right. What, who are you talking about? Who are you thinking about when you say that stuff? It's all about me. Let me tell you what I'm not. I, me, me, me. I, 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 I. But humility doesn't do that. Humility says, I may achieve success, I may accomplish things, but my goal is to serve others. Whatever talents and gifts I have, I'm going to use them for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did. I'm the king of glory, he says, and I've come here to serve you. I've come to work for your well-being, not merely my own. That's what humility is. It's serving others. And Jesus has this dialogue with them and says, do you know what I've done to you now that I've washed your feet? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. I am teacher, rabbi, and I'm the Lord. Here's the example. If I, the Lord, the king, the master, and the rabbi, if I washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. If I did this to you, you certainly need to be doing it for others. He says, a slave is not greater than the master. See, I'm the master, you're the slave. If I, the master, washed your feet, then you as the slave ought to wash others. The one who is sent, that's the apostles, you're not greater than the one who sent you. I'm greater than you. And being greater than you, I washed your feet. You will be blessed if you wash the feet of others. All right, so look around the room. Put your head on a swivel, look around. Look around at the people in this room. These are the people Jesus says you are to serve. Is there anybody in this room that you look at and say, no way, no how, I'm not serving them? I mean, don't admit it out loud, but just in your own heart. <laughs> Is there anybody you go like, oh, no, I'm not serving that person? If that's true, you've got some attitudinal adjustments to make. Because Jesus said, serve one another. He's going to go on in this upper room discourse and say, this is how the world will know you belong to me, that you love other Christians. How do you love them? Feel good about them? Have this little pitter-patter in your heart to say, oh, I really like them a lot? No, you serve them. Is there anybody's feet in this room that you wouldn't wash? If so, something needs to change in your heart if you want to please Jesus. All right, I'm going to get in the kitchen a little bit. Husbands, husbands, pay attention here for a moment. We have been given authority in our homes by Jesus himself. I know the culture's against us. The culture's trying to destroy this, but we don't care about the culture. We care about Jesus. And Jesus says, husbands, you are the head of your wife. You're the head of your children. That's a lot of authority. Do you use that authority to serve your wife and your children? 
do you wash your wife's feet? Figuratively speaking, or literally if you want to. Do you look at your wife and say, no, I'm not going to serve her. If so, you need to change your attitude. Because Jesus says, serve one another's feet. And the illustration is someone you have authority over. Our culture, like I said, is is trying to remove this from society entirely and doing a good job. But there is a backlash coming. There are several men's movements that are already rising up, and it's going to become more powerful as it goes. The problem is, this men's movement, it's all based on unbelieving, unchristian, pagan principles, and it's going to be nasty. Because when men who despite what our culture is trying to convince us, when men who are stronger than women decide to take back the natural order of things, men are going to abuse that power. And we as men need to be very careful not to get swept away in that. And remember, Jesus says, men, use your authority to serve those under your charge wash their feet. It doesn't mean you don't have authority. You do. But your attitude is the same as Jesus. How can I do what is good for those under my care? How do I serve them? How do I help them become more Christ-like? And men, if we do not serve our families that way, we are not following the example of Jesus. Amen, ladies? Oh, you fell for it. No, you're not supposed to say amen to that. (laughs) Now I'm going to talk to you, wives. (laughs) God tells us explicitly that wives are given to their husbands to help their husbands, to serve their husbands. And our entire culture says, don't you serve your husbands. That means you're oppressed. That means you're just a a doormat. Nonsense. We don't care what the world says. The Bible says wives are called to serve their husbands. Jesus served his disciples, ladies. It is not degrading to serve others, especially those whom Jesus has said, I want you to serve your husbands. So ladies, wives, wash your husband's feet? Are you willing to wash your husband's feet? Are you willing to serve your husband? If not, you have some work to do in your attitude because Jesus says this is how it works. You serve your husbands. Unmarried people, do you look at your singleness and think, woohoo, man, I got all the time in the world. I got great hobbies. I'm going to go climb every 14er along the front range. I've got all kinds of free time to do this and that and the other thing. No, you don't. Jesus has not called you to a life of self gratification. He says to the single people in this room, it's not about you, it's about Him. He says, look around you, serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Find opportunities 
to stop worrying about what you're getting or not getting and start worrying about how can I serve others. And if you're unwilling to do that, you have some work to do in your attitude of why you're here. All of us are to have the attitude, how can I bless others? How